Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And this week we're discussing our uh, book club book, Thunderbolts by Kurt Busiek. Excelsior. I am really excited for this one, Elias. I feel like the Thunderbolts have been kind of uh, forgotten as of late. They're not in the movies, and they haven't been in an ongoing series in many years, but they're like a, a classic Marvel team for many years. I actually had no idea who these people were. Uh, I didn't know any of the conceit. I knew nothing about the Thunderbolts before we picked this. I just saw Kurt Busiek and it being an older series. And I went, you know what? Let's let's give it a shot. I'm trying to think. There was a famous Warren Ellis run of Thunderbolts, which I think I own in trade. That's very good and well regarded. And my very favorite run of Thunderbolts is there's a long, long run by Jeff Parker. Oh. And it probably would have ended just before you were getting into comics. That would make sense. I haven't seen Jeff Parker on a book in a while. He hasn't done a Marvel. I think that was his last Marvel. Uh, he's done some DC since then. Yeah, he did. He did Batman sixty six and Future Quest, and he did a lot of the the tie in uh, licensed stuff. Yeah, I love Jeff Parker. Jeff Parker uh, is uh, one of my very favorites. Quiet, quiet favorite. Yeah, he does good work. Um, but I, I a loud one of my favorites is Kurt Busiek, who. Um, I would say is uh, one of my favorite creators of uh, that whole generation of guys who uh, who popped in the 90s. Totally. I was going to say, he's never had a bad run. That's not true. But like when you average his career and you read all of his stuff, you even like bad Kurt Busiek, I would take over some some other writers. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what's my least enthusiastic Kurt Busiek and I'm not coming up with anything. I, I just recently read his sword, the first half of his Aquaman Sword of Atlantis run. Yeah, I've never read that. I It's all right. I mean, it, it was definitely interesting. It was very interesting seeing, because that's early 2000s, I believe, coming off of, and it, I, I'm reading, I'm like, did Kelly Sue DeConnick just do this but better? <laughs> and she kind of did, <laughs> which is very weird. I, I'm sure she's a big uh, Kurt Busiek fan herself. It started in one year later. So Aquaman was dead. He had been killed, murdered, gone. Gone for a year. And this new guy shows up with the same name. And he's also looks exactly like, you know, Arthur Curry. But he's like Arthur Johnson Curry or something. And he's got this chip on his shoulder. And very, very much trying to reinvent the Aquaman. So that sounds cool, actually. Yeah, and I know his... um, I've read his whole Avengers run... And I'm not as enthusiastic about that run as I am most of the other stuff he's written, just because the the characters in the 90s Avengers, like, don't really excite me that much. Mm-hmm. But it's still, like, it, it's killer. It's one of the best Avengers runs ever, It's which is a pretty low bar, actually. But um, <laughs> he... It, yeah, I don't think it's a secret that the Avengers weren't even popular before the movies. That's fair. Yeah. Busick wrote one of the... Uh, in his Avengers comic, he wrote one of the most famous panels ever in, like, Marvel history. Which is it? It's the one where uh, Thor is leading a bunch of the Avengers and they're blowing through a wall and he's quietly saying, Ultron, we would have words with thee. You know that one? Oh, yes. Yeah, so that's uh, Kurt Busick. And I feel like that really uh, <sighs> captures his... Um, uh, his his pacing's really good. He's very cinematic. And he gets these, like, really great, like, uh, action movie moments. Yeah, he knows how to deliver a line. Kurt Busiek would write the best Fast and Furious movie, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> 
Right, like uh, his when he's doing action stuff, that's like written for Vin Diesel. <laughs> that's funny. And I guess his most famous thing is um, uh, Marvels and Astro City, right? Yeah, I think that would be yeah Marvels, especially a Marvel, considering it's, it's so popular that it spawned an entire current uh, sort of semi line imprint thing going on right now at Marvels. Totally, yeah. That music is uh, editing, I believe. Yeah. And then he he did something similar at DC, but I don't remember what it was. Was it like a Kingdom Come thing? No, it wasn't Kingdom Come because that was Mark Wade. That was yeah. That's the other uh, deconstructionist uh, Alex Ross epic of the nineties. Uh, there's a couple of those. What do you know about Kurt Busiek? Uh, like his story about how he got into comics, etc. I don't actually know that much about it. I know where it was Trinity. That was what I was trying. Trinity and Superman's Secret Identity. That's what I was trying to think of, but not the same. When we Next time when we do a DC podcast, we're going to do this episode all over again, but about those ones. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually know all that much about how he got into comics. I've definitely read about it, uh, and I know that he's good friends with Scott McCloud, who wrote um, Understanding Comics, which is you know one of those books where if you're starting to learn about comic criticism is thrown down in front of you along with like Will Eisner's comics and sequential art. Legitimately, uh, understanding comics is one of my favorite books. I reread it all the time. It's fantastic. Oh, and I lent it to my teacher friend right before COVID. And I think that copy is his now. I think I got to replace it. Oh, uh, no, it's a gift. It's a wonderful gift. I hope he appreciates it. Okay, but so, uh, uh, Busick, if I recall, knows Scott McCloud from uh, middle school or high school. Like, they grew up together, and they were like a whole little uh, nerdy circle of comics fans. And as I've heard the legend told, uh, Busick would uh, sit around, and uh, whenever anyone would complain about comics, he would do this thing where he would just say, I, I'm picturing him in like sixth grade here at the lunchroom table. He would be like, oh, that's not a problem. Here's how he, they should fix it. And he would just, like, make up a retcon, and everyone's like, wow, Kurt Busiek can figure out how to bring anyone back from the dead, is, like, <laughs> his teenage reputation. And at some point, he's, like, going around on the um, on the Comic-Con circuit, and he's starting to, like, get to know creators because he's uh, shaking their hand and having conversations with them every year when they roll through town. Mm -hmm. And word gets back to him that... Um, his suggestion of how to bring back Jean Grey, of having, like, a cocoon at the bottom of the sea and the phoenix had been impersonating her. Like, this was all stuff that he had made up when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. he, word had gotten to Marvel, and, like, uh, that's literally how they did it based on this teenager's pitch for the story. Well, that would not fly nowadays. Yeah, which would definitely not legally fly nowadays. But it ended up being kind of a group thought that was super cool. He got uh, stayed in touch with these people, and right when he graduates high school, he starts writing his first scripts. Damn. He says on his Wikipedia page, the last semester of senior year, he submitted his first uh, DC script. Got a leg up on us. <laughs> well, yeah, he's uh, he popped young. But isn't that so cool? I just love the idea that um, Busick is like the ultimate of that kind of comics fan who like sits around and loves making up his own stories. And it just like completely went his way. He got to live the dream. I think that's like a lovely story. And I think I think the best part of that is that he's not very... It, so it sounds like he was never like the cynical or like the... The stereotypical comic fan where he'd just sit around and be like, oh, it's terrible. He's like, oh, no, no, this, this is how I would fix it and make it a better story. Like, it's very constructive. Yeah, and, and, and I love to see now, um, I feel like the version of that guy you make up in your head is uh, not very uh, social or charismatic or easy to work with. But Busick, as he's gotten older, has uh, also um, made a lot of room for 
younger people that who he wants to support and that's kind of what's so cool about uh the series he's editing right now is he's just like tracking down voices that he thinks are neat and getting them a marvel comic yeah oh him and alex ross because we should i we should at least mention that marvel's is a lot more alex ross's baby uh whereas sure whatever this other series that kurt piece that was supposed to be coming out but got delayed i don't remember what it's called but they're but they're both kind of working working with that the the Marvel snapshots. That's one of the ones that Busick was overseeing. That's right. That's the one, and that gave us that that amazing Jay Edidin X Men comic. Fantastic issue. Damn him for making me like Cyclops. Cyclops is always cool. Mm. What this is not a. There are no X Men in this podcast, but if there were, <laughs> uh, we could talk about Cyclops because we're talking about the Thunderbolts. So you had yes. no. Literally no idea uh, going into this what the Thunderbolts were about. Literally no idea. I didn't know the conceit. I was just like, oh, they're another team. Are they kind of like the the new warriors or the new mutants or something? In, in most runs of the Thunderbolts, they're they're made up of uh, villains. Yeah, I had no idea about that. Spoilers for anyone who didn't read the book or don't, I mean, they, don't know yeah, the Thunderbolts the like I did. So uh, starting with the Warren Ellis run and after that, they start being squads of more famous villains. Ah, okay. Like uh, Bullseye is on that team and Venom. Yeah, and currently, or I guess just recently, there was a there's, the Thunderbolts are back in King and Black as a miniseries. Right, and that's another. So what the Thunderbolts have really turned into is um, over. They've turned into Marvel Suicide Squad. Uh, there's a lot of arcs of Thunderbolts where they're villains and they're working time off their sentence by uh, working for the heroes for a little while. Huh, that is Which- very different than this. Yeah, well, they've used Thunderbolts for a bunch of different stuff. And uh, there's a run that I don't much care for by uh, Dan Way, which ends up being concluded by uh, Charles Soule. And I have the Charles Soule ones in trade there, and those are pretty fun. But that one is called The Thunderbolts with an apostrophe S, and it is Thunderbolt Ross's, like, Black Ops hit squad. And, like, Elektra and Punisher and are on the team. Mm. And they're, like, killing people for hire. And mm. Thunderbolt Ross is there. All the right. Thunderbolts. All right. That makes me yeah. smile. I'm not, I'm not a Thunderbolt Ross fan. Red yeah. Hulk. <laughs> you may be surprised. That run uh, has some fun. But the original Thunderbolts is a far different concept. And one oh, that... Yeah. What was your reaction when you figured out what was going on, Elias? Walk me through. Uh, put, me, put me there with you. So, first issue. I'm reading it. I'm like, okay, here's a new... Here's a new uh, you know, team. They look weird i would actually my my first thought was actually are these the x-men but 90s even though we already had that with jim lee's x-men but 90s Uh, jim lee's (laughs) Um, x-men would have been uh six or seven years before this yeah yeah and it was like the biggest comic in the world when it came out so definitely an influence that's uh five years later everyone's impersonating it i was actually specifically looking at their names are also generic i'm sorry i I forget what all of their code names are. Um, we, yeah, There's, we're going to go through most them. Most of them but... are so dull. Oh, okay. So we got Atlas. We got Citizen V. Uh, we got Sunbird. Uh, Songbird. We have... Songbird. We have uh, Mach 1. Yeah, Mach uh, 1. Crap. What, what's... Uh, techno. He was. There's the one I was trying to think of. Te- techno. I, I saw that and went, is that Forge? That has to be Forge. That's Forge, right? It's not Forge. They do both love headbands. They have they have the exact same design. I can't yeah, they get got past pretty, it. 
his designs changed a bunch of times over the years. We're going to talk about yeah. these guys in, in a little bit. Yeah, and I'm missing someone from the team. Um, did you uh, meteorite? Thank you. That was the other one. Oh, and me- we're gonna we're definitely gonna talk about meteorite. She's I thought, my favorite. I thought Sunbird Songbird was meteorite when you were saying. That's why I keep saying Sunbird. I'm like, oh, our costume is super orange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're looking at meteorite. I actually kind of yeah. like that costume. But okay, you're so you're reading the issue. You're introduced. So I'm to reading this. the issue. I'm reading the issue, and I'm like, I'm mostly just struck by how how not generic the issue is, but the team seems. I'm like, all right, they're another. They're like an Avengers stand-in. Right, and you can't believe you're just like, uh, oh my god, people like the Thunderbolts. It's just like Meteorite and Atlas. That just, yeah. uh... like, what what do they have going for them? I be- I guess they get better as they go on. Right. Then, so we should also state technically this wasn't the Thunderbolts' first appearance, but their conceit was not in their original debut issue. They just kind of show up as a new team. In the Incredible Hulk issue, so it's Incredible Hulk number four forty nine. Right, and they show up as this like generic team of guys who are just here yeah. to fight the Hulk. And if you're reading Hulk, like every month, Hulk is fighting a different team yeah. of guys with like cool jetpacks and <laughs> what else did you have in the nineties? Like electro whips and uh, a lot of plasma beams. Yeah, but they do a very good job in that at kind of foreshadowing what the team actually is. <laughs> I appreciated that they don't. It's clear that. Busek told David what was going on. And then I turn the page and it's just Baron Zemo wearing <laughs> his hat, his mask, clutching his fist in the most uh, villain ways. And we get all of these Z-list <laughs> uh, super villains in new costumes. I'm like, okay, you have me. <laughs> I'm right, and so where this is going now. The premise of Thunderbolts is that Baron Zemo is trying to take over the world because he is that sort of villain, and his plan to, this time to take over the world is first to earn the trust of everybody by being a new superhero team. It's hilarious, especially because they're all like, "Well, can't we just steal this shit?" Like they they're constantly fighting against their villainous ways and not because they want to do good but because they want to appear like they're doing good and they can't blow their cover right and 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 once you finish that first issue and you read the twist you're just like surely someone must have thought of this before this is such an obvious idea but no i guess no one had and that's, and that's what I love the about is music. the perfect choice. Oh, too. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Baron Zemo uh, is such a great uh, sinister mastermind. This is, a, that's the, when you're reading Astro City, it's all the, Busick always has this angle of the kind of person who thinks obsessively about this sort of stuff. And so he arrives at these really logical conclusions that other writers uh, don't obsess like him. Yeah. And in, in this case, part of that is, well, the Avengers are gone, and so were the Fantastic Four because of... And I didn't know that this was on the heels of Onslaught, which I know absolutely killed your love of comics for a while. Right, so I was going to say, I actually think the first time I encountered Busick was I found, when I was a really small kid, um, back issues of his Power Man and Iron Fist 80s issues, and that was the first time I ever encountered Busick, and I think that's some of his uh, youngest and earliest work. But oh, wow. I would have yeah. loved Thunderbolts as a kid, but Onslaught is what turned me off of comics, and, and this uh, spun out of that. So I didn't know about Thunderbolts until I was much older. No, oh, it is kind of a shame, because there's I, there's definitely a lot here that... There's a lot going for, for Thunderbolts. Right, and I'm going to walk us through um, 
the history of Thunderbolts in a moment, but mainly in this episode, we're going to be talking about Thunderbolts numbers 1 to 5, which were written by Kurt Busiek, and those issues are all penciled by Mark Bagley, who is a real fixture of the 90s. Uh, they are inked by Vince Russell, colored by Joe Rosas, lettered by Comic Crafts Dave Lanfear, and Oscar G, is that what you found in the credits? Yeah, so we're never given, in the official credits, the last name of this person. It's just always credited as Comic Crafts, uh, either Dave, Dave Lanfear, Dave Lanfear <laughs> slash OG, or slash Oscar G. Like, Oscar, like, we never get full credits for the letterers, really, uh, except for Dave. And this is true through all of these, all of these issues, whenever it's Comic Craft, it's either Dave Lanfear and then... Uh, just initials or like the first name. It's really incredible how hard it is to uh, cr- to find accurate credits on comics, even that weren't written that long ago. Yeah. And I probably could have Googled who this was, but I wanted to take the credits directly from, <laughs> from the pages. Uh, that is really fair. Although now they just credit the, the teams. They just say Comic Craft or And World Design, or there was some other company that, not company, but like group. Uh, yeah, like a little studio. Or, but now they actually, actually they do the reverse. It's just VC, and then we actually get the name of the person, <laughs> like Clayton, Clayton Callis and Josebino and company. Anyway. Anyway, so we start off in the first issue of uh, Thunderbolts, and we don't start from the perspective of the Thunder. I was just um, really early on in this first issue. I'm not going to go beat by beat for all of this run of issues, but um, I wanted well, the to first talk... issue for sure. Well, I wanted to talk about. Um, uh, all the 90s stuff that just struck me like how because this yeah. is the first time you and i have read a comic from this deck uh from this whole era yeah 1997 yeah uh so it's there's a lot of uh narrative captions which are i completely done with today yeah, i feel and like the narrative captions aren't from a person's perspective they're they're the stan lee style like they're that holdover where yeah they're like an omniscient narrator yeah kurt like you would get... is talking yeah and the main thing that this narrator is concerned with is just, like, random civilians in the street and their feelings and their experiences. It's a very long time before we get introduced to any of the Thunderbolts. Yeah, and, I mean, that's very Kurt Busiek. He's very concerned with what are the people seeing and then building it out from there because that's what, ostensibly, we would be seeing. It's like, what what if you were there? What would you potentially be thinking? What would be the people sitting next to you, a building over? What are they thinking as they see all this? That's a really good way to introduce yourselves to a world, because if you don't care about the team, you can start by caring about what's going on, and then you get the team, and you're like, oh, this is why they're so cool in this moment, and... I think you're really hitting on something that I uh, do feel is kind of missing from today's comics, because... Like, you care about, uh, they're in New York for most of the issue, but you, and you care about New York, but it doesn't matter where you are. If they're going to jump over to the Jersey Pine Barrens or to, like, the Florida Swamps or something for just uh, half an issue, he'll introduce a character and make you care about them in a couple of panels. Yeah. And then yeah, you'll yeah. understand uh, the stakes of the situation, because there's, like, real people in those buildings, you know? Yeah, they're not they're not empty things to be smashed up. The other super weird thing about 90s comics that I forgot about is how melodramatic and straight-faced everything is. It's, like, very unfun in a lot of places. There'll be scenes about um, just, like, describing a civilian suffering about how scared they are, and it'll really, like, linger on the, uh, the fear and the yeah. pain. 
Like, uh, I feel like comics wouldn't be uh, bummers like that today. No, and I think part of that's also because maybe we, they don't, you don't want to kind of be like, it, it feels like you're getting your rocks off on tragedy. Yeah, I, As, I was, I was really struck by this on that, on that big splash page at the beginning uh-huh. Spot, the two-page two spread where, and every time we cut back to describing what's happening with, oh God, what's her name? Uh, Helen. Helen Halle, uh, Tachihama. Uh, yeah, who becomes uh, Jolt uh, no, by I'm the sorry, end of Takama. this. Takahama. Her. I was like, what, what are we doing? It's like three issues before we get any resolution for that. And that's just how, uh, if you go back and read 80s comics, there's a lot of that. They'll, um, they'll introduce this mysterious thread and it'll just, uh, appear for a page every issue. And it'll slowly develop kind of in the background. It's like, ah, it's not important, but it will be. You're very impatient with stuff like that, I have learned. I, it has to be done well. And I wasn't impatient here. I was, I wasn't like, get to the point with that. I was like, okay. But I was very much like, I'm like, okay, why are we literally just checking in on this person's suffering? That seems in poor taste. Yeah, uh, and it's it's played for shocks, and it's played for melodrama. It's it's played uh, really broadly, and it's not um it's not that it's necessarily a bummer because it's not sad. It's just uh, lurid. Yeah, see, what I thought you were gonna bring up was the shot of the destruction of the city, and then people flying by the twin towers. <laughs> I did make note of that, but uh, I think that comes up a lot in uh, comics. Of this era, and I... Yeah. I mean, they were big, iconic buildings. I'm always shocked to see them. I always forget. The most egregious is if we ever read uh, Dwayne McDuffie's original run of Damage Control. The first issue is literally Damage Control repairing the Twin Towers, which have been snapped in half. Oh. By a big robot that She-Hulk and Spider-Man were fighting. By a giant robot? Yeah, that She-Hulk and Spider-Man were fighting. (laughs) It's a great issue. Uh, Dwayne McDuffie rules. Okay, but then, um, so this takes place after Onslaught. What do you know about Onslaught, Elias? I, I know it was. If I ask you who is hot Onslaught, garbage. If I ask you who is uh, the Onslaught, who is Onslaught's identity? Uh, wasn't it the when? No, okay. <laughs> so I've read Axis, which I believe had like super onslaught the red onslaught i believe is what yeah. they call that character and that was when the red skull ate charles xavier's brain god that was dumb yeah but i don't know who the original onslaught is and i feel like it's magneto and xavier were merged into some monster be i don't know you actually nailed it yeah it's a gestalt being formed of uh, professor x and magneto how the fuck did that happen and how did editorial think that was a good idea oh my god i could get really into the weeds of what was going on in marvel editorial in the early 90s i really like the way bagley draws onslaught though when it shows up on like the tv Oh, yeah. Onslaught's got kind of um, a fun design because he's got the Magneto colors. Very 90s. So pointy. The Onslaught story itself really dragged on. was a lot of nonsense. And it was a lot about, uh, you know what? It was kind of like uh, bummers like this where um, a lot of it was about the, the guilt and the darkness in Professor Xavier. Mm-hmm. And just like as a kid, that bummed me out. So I, I take back what I said earlier. Um those weren't written by Busick, those issues. Uh, some of them were written by uh, Scott Lobdell, and some of them were written by Mark Wade, and some of them were written by Jeff Loeb. It's just a great collection. <laughs> yeah. 
but none of them were pulling off this sort of melodrama um, with as light a touch as Busick. They were, those guys are on the wrong side of it. And so Onslaught, the story concludes with um, a bunch of Earth superheroes and Doctor Doom all sacrifice themselves to save the day, and they die. They jump into, like, a big black hole and die. Well, that's one way to end it. Yeah, and so that's what they were trying to reset the, not reset the universe, but kind of provide a slate for other heroes to be put at the fore, or if it was just a, oh, we're gonna, it was big and dramatic, and they're dead, and they'll, we know they'll come back in a year. I think that Avengers and Fantastic Four were were considered the expendable cheap brand in the 90s, and X-Men was, uh, was, even though they were dealing with an X-Men villain, the X-Men survived. Ah, and uh, they tried to make something new big. They tried to make the Thunderbolts happen. Stop trying to make Thunderbolts happen. <laughs> no, keep trying to make Thunderbolts happen. <laughs> but okay, so um, at this point in the issue that the Thunderbolts in their secret heroic identities uh, debut. Now, there's a lot of action in these issues. I liked it. It like moves and it like does its purpose, but I don't remember most of it without looking it up. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I don't remember so much of it. Yeah, they fight mercenaries and they fight, uh, you know, sea-less uh, Marvel villains. Yeah, the most interesting part is honestly the the interpersonal drama, which I'm yeah. kind of a sucker for anyway. I there was one fight. Uh, they fought the mad the mad thinker and his awesome android, and I really like his awesome android. <laughs> is that his name? The awesome android. Awesome Andy. Yeah. <laughs> the super adaptoid. Ah, uh, okay. But also the Mad Thinker was also a robot. Yeah, he's a robot sometimes too. You know how it'd go. Anyway, so um, Citizen V is their leader. So just what's your thoughts on Citizen V in these first couple issues as an identity before we get into Zemo? Like, what do you think of that identity? I was like, well, as an identity, he's... uh, It feels like... I'm trying to think of the right words, and I... Oh, I just keep coming back to it kind of reads like a someone parodying what they think Captain America would be if he grew up in the French Revolution. <laughs> oh yeah, he's got kind of a musketeer vibe, you're thinking? Yeah, especially with like the the helmet, the the cat hel- cat ears helmet. I kind of and... like it. He's got this uh, smooth-faced mask which I really like and it's kind of mysterious. You're like wondering how he can see you through it. Yeah, he also always looks kind of angry. Yeah, he's got angry eyebrows because it's pointy. It reminds me, actually, of uh, Guy Fawkes a little bit. Like, when I see that, I'm like, he's definitely trying to channel the energy of Guy Fawkes from V for, v for Vendetta. Or the Guy Fawkes mask, I guess. It's well, I mean, yeah, Guy Fawkes v. is ori- just called V. So the original Citizen V was a character named John Watkins, and he appeared in a 1942 issue of Daring Mystery Comics. Which, I think if it's the 40s, that still would have been timely comics, right? It wasn't called Marvel yet? Yeah, Marvel didn't exist until the 60s. At the end of the issue that Citizen V first appears in, uh, he's like a new hero, and in his debut he is killed by the original Baron Heinrich Zemo. So that's his connection to Zemo, is that um, in this superhero's first appearance, he gets killed by Zemo. He, he was actually, like, that wasn't just a, a retcon type deal. That was, that's what actually happened in that original issue. Yeah, in the 42 issue. That's where Citizen V first appeared. Damn. 
And since then, there have been a whole bunch of Citizen Vs. A lot of them are the descendants of John. Like, his son takes up the mantle. And then also, um, Heinrich Zemo's son, Helmut Zemo, who is this guy, takes up uh, the Baron Zemo mantle. And so Zemos and Citizen Vs were, are fighting all over the place. Yeah, because you needed a way to excuse, to say, well, how is this person still around while still being, you know, not 90 years old? Right, of course. But then also, I love... Um, that's so evil that he is appropriating the heroic identity of a hero that his dad killed. Like, that's just, yeah. like, so mustache-twirly, nefarious. Baron. So now we should talk about Baron Zemo, right? Like, where, you, where do you put him in the pantheon of Captain America villains? I, honestly, I don't know where I would put him. He's one of those, you say the name, I'm like, oh, Captain America villain. But so many Captain America villains are just generic evil Nazis that fill a different role. You've got evil Nazi scientist in Arnim Zola. You've got evil Nazi occultist in Red Skull. And then you've got... Is there a Dr. Occult as well? There might be. There's, some, he... there's some other... There, there's and Baron there's Blood, like... who's the vampire. Yeah, and, and then there's evil Nazi Captain America in the, the Overmensch or whatever. Yeah, I think his name's <laughs> the... Masterman. Yeah, Master Man. But uh, Zola well, we're talking is, about losers. Is, not Zemo's Zola. not a yeah. loser. Yeah. What's I think that? Zemo's cool because Zemo, Red he's, Skull he's, is... He's evil Nazi aristocrat. Yeah, where Red Skull's thing is that he's like ruthless and cruel. Zemo's thing is that he's like flamboyant and uh, overcomplicated. Why, why make it simple when you can just add an extra 300 steps that any point could go wrong? I would say uh, Zemo's biggest claim to fame up until this point was, uh, do you know about the, have you ever read Avengers Under Siege? I think that's from the 70s. No, I haven't. Uh, it's one of the earlier well-regarded Avengers stories, and it's about Zemo and the Masters of Evil, which is a different roster than these Thunderbolts, uh, invade Avengers Mansion, and they just, like, do really awful, cruel stuff to, like, strike at the hearts of the heroes. And Zemo burns all of Captain America's effects that he's had since the 40s, including all his, like, photos and stuff. And it's just this story about Zemo's, like, petty cruelty and how <laughs> he... And that's, like, what kind of villain he is, is uh, yeah. he, he'll kill Cap by a million cuts over a million years. He doesn't matter how long it takes. The longer, the better for this guy. The more elaborate and the more pieces to a plan, the happier he is. And so it's perfect that he's leading a team of superheroes to, in a convoluted uh, scheme to take over the world or whatever. Yeah. This is very pinky in the brain. Yeah. yeah. Like, what what <laughs> yeah. are we doing tonight? Well, I'm going to make a superhero team. going to get them all to fall in love with me, and then I will just declare myself ruler of the world. Sure. All right there, Zemo. So before we get more into this and kind of... We should take our break, mid-roll break, and we will see you all after the ad. Marvel Ain't At The Movies is a new show on the Multiversity Podcast Network in which I, Alexis, and I, Matthew, force our other friend, Matt, hello, to watch every film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as they lead up to the upcoming Avengers Infinity War. You see, our friend Matt hello. has never read a comic book in his life nor ever had any interest in watching any of these films until Black Panther came out. And even then I want to note that I just thought Black Panther was cool and really didn't feel like I had to watch any of these other movies. Which is where we came in and decided otherwise for him. <laughs> 
Each episode features us interviewing Matt before and after watching each film, gauging his knowledge of the characters, seeing what he thinks will happen, and what characters he starts rooting for or identifying with. And then mercilessly teasing him afterwards with all of the comic book knowledge, Easter eggs, and other random nonsense that we know and can hold over his head. Cool. So join us every weekday this April for a new episode full of cinematic insight. Fun facts. And I'm here also. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome back. We are still talking about Thunderbolt uh, by Kurt Busiek. And uh, while the main series is penciled by Mark Bagley and credited to a bunch of other guys I mentioned before the break, uh, we wanted to go through and just make sure that we uh, got in the credits for uh, the many people who worked on the many issues that we covered for today. Yeah. So the tra- the, origin- the trade that we read from had a whole bunch of side stories and an annual and whatnot. Uh, so unless mentioned, every issue is written by Kurt, Kurt Busiek. But the Incredible Hulk issue, number 449, was written by Peter David, drawn or penciled by Mike Diodato Jr. This is pre- his pre-digital days. Uh, inked by Tom Wegrizin, uh, and then colored by Glennis Oliver and lettered by RS slash Comicraft slash KF. Who those are? I don't know. Uh, Spider-Man Team Up number seven is illustrated by Sal Buscema and Dick Giordano, colored by Tom Smith and lettered by Dave and Oscar. And then... Annual of 1997. Get ready, y'all. We've got <laughs> we've got the artist teams of Mark Bagley and Al Milgram, Bob McLeod and Will Blyburn, Tom Grummet and Scott Koblish, Ron Randall and Jim Sanders, Gene Colan and Tom Palmer, Derek Robertson and Bruce Patterson, George Perez and Carl Kessel, and Chris Marinan and Andrew Pipoy. All colored by Joe Rosas and all lettered by Comicraft's Dave Lanfear. And then we've got in what had me banging my head against a wall a negative one issue <laughs> was penciled by steve epting inked by bob wiasek colored by tom smith and lettered by uh comicraft's david lanfear slash og i believe that's oscar slash sh so that's the uh, creative teams and before yeah. the uh, break we were talking about uh baron zemo the leader of the thunderbolts and i wanted to talk more about the fictional team within the bounds of the book. I kind of wanted to get your impressions as someone uh, who was first introduced to them and, I, and what you, where you see them going in the future. I just like, uh, yeah. it's so interesting because you definitely don't know these characters. They're not very uh, famous no, outside of these pages. Even even after this, I don't know any of these characters that have really made a, an impression other than, you know, our, I don't want to say good friend because one, fuck the Nazis and two, uh, he's Baron Zemo. Uh, I mean, he had a, a strange adaptation in Winter Soldier. That was no, not in Winter Soldier. In in Civil War, the movie's a bit of a mess. Anyway, but like, I don't know who Screaming Mimi is. Great name though. Oh, we're gonna. I I have all their uh, debuts, and we'll talk about where they, they yeah. might have been. Okay, but so we're, but uh, I actually before Goliath. I didn't know that Goliath was a villain in this era. But this Goliath, because I only know the Goliath that is unceremoniously murdered in Civil War. Right. So we are talking about the car- uh, Atlas when he, uh, he is in the Thunderbolts. His human civilian name is Eric Jostin. Yeah. Oh, also Hawkeye was Goliath. That was where else. Yeah. And he was an Avengers villain. Uh, classic. He goes back to 1965. Wow. 
and he's kind of, and he's kind of a Hawkeye villain, I guess. Is uh, he'll show up, he'll menace the Avengers. He's also a Hank Pym villain, and then he would just like, uh, you know, he's not that interesting, but he's <laughs> like a scumbag, size changing villain. Mm-hmm. And I, I I mentioned Hawkeye because I think that they have kind of the best chemistry because Hawkeye's also kind of a scumbag, and so they seem like uh, they're they're not so different, right? There there's a thin line between Atlas and Clint Barton. Yeah. What did you think of him from these issues? He's all right. He didn't really have much of a personality. Yeah, he's kind of scummy in this. He's like a he, he's in this for the fame and fortune, and he likes being a bad guy because uh, he gets to like flirt with girls and get his picture taken, and he likes all those things. Yeah. And I will tell you that Atlas, um, outside of Thunderbolts, hasn't really made a lot of appearances. Uh, he recently was in there was a Giant Men miniseries as part of War of the Realms. Yeah, he was in that. Yeah, Atlas was the token non-scientist, and the other, and all of the the other size-changing guys all made fun of him for being blue-collar and stupid. Oh shit, he was there. Yeah, so he he shows up and stuff every so often, but he's definitely a very minor character in the wider yeah. Marvel world. I think he kind of uh, quits himself uh, well here. I mean, he's not like a guy I want to be friends with, but he's like a fun, uh, scummy guy uh, as part of the team. Yeah, very weird. Uh, next up on my list, I, we got uh, the guy uh, Abner Jenkins, or Abe Jenkins, who goes by Mach 1 uh, in these issues. He is the C-list Spider-Man villain, the Beatle. Yeah, I don't know him. Never uh, read Beatle in your comics when you were a kid? No. W- what did you think of uh, him as Mach 1 here? It's fine, I guess. And I don't know if this was Busick or just because these, these characters are kind of kind of nothing. But the, I, I kept getting Mach 1 and, and uh, not Forge. <laughs> uh, techno. Techno. I kept getting them mixed up, at least trying to figure out who they were under the, the costume. Yeah, they're uh, both kind of like... Their personalities like a, are, are very, very similar. Yeah, they're both kind of haughty nerds with, like, uh, long yeah. hair. Really, really, it was Zemo as Citizen V and uh, Moonstone. What's her... A meteorite. Thank you. I don't know why I'm forgetting all these names. I really shouldn't be. I no, it's perfectly all right. To, some of them, and I'll talk about it as we go. But some of them uh, don't go by the names they went by in these pages anymore. Yeah. So those are the two I think most interesting characters until we get Jolt. Well, I I actually rather like uh, uh, Abe in these pages. He's kind of got a little crush on Songbird, which is like mm-hmm. fine. But what I really like is there's the story about um, him wanting revenge on Spider-Man. Oh yeah, I thought that was the most compelling personal arc anyone had in these issues. Yeah, he's like, I want to get me photos of Spider-Man, but photos being a punch to the face and <laughs> maybe death. Uh, but I like the idea. It just seems like a great uh, use of the premise that obviously. Uh, the hero, these guys as heroes, uh, the the real heroes don't realize that they used to beat these guys up. And how do they feel about it? Yeah, and especially when with Spider Man, s- someone gives them a legitimate reason to go fighting Spider Man, so that Spider Man isn't suspicious. Yeah, and I thought that, that was a great... all the time. Spider Man gets beat up. He gets beat up by Johnny Storm. <laughs> right, everyone thinks he's a menace. Yeah. Um, that was my favorite of uh, this set of issues, and I, I thought Abe was a really uh, interesting protagonist. I'm happy to tell you that as Thunderbolts progresses, uh, he is one of the most successfully reformed villains, and he becomes a hero. Um, And specifically, he's got a great supporting role in a run I think we're going to read one day, which is um, the uh, Superior Foes of Spider-Man, 
aka the best thing Nick Spencer ever wrote. I have only heard good things about that series. Like, I don't think I've heard anyone actually bash it, so I will take take everyone's word for it that it's good. Wasn't Beetle in that, too? There's a new Beetle, and Mach yeah. 1 is walking around uh, telling everybody, hey, I know you're villains now, but you can reform like me. I'm so happy now that I'm on the right side of the law. And they all think he's a nerd. Oh. oh. And isn't that a great role for poor Abe Jenkins? Yeah. That that tracks. That tracks uh, I, I like him. I think he's a fun character, and I'm glad that he... Uh, he actually has a lot of staying power in Marvel. He shows up all over the place. And I, I really like the art in that issue. Me too. That Zelda Shema does Ooh, yeah, a great yeah, yeah. job. So you said be. that um, Moonstone slash Meteorite left a bigger impression on you? Yeah. Yeah. I think part of that is because she's kind of given, at least in these issues, the, the, the meatiest role in terms of the long term, what's going to happen, what's going on, even though like... Like you said, most of the action itself is fairly generic. People, it, it's kind of nice. Like Atlas has to use his size-changing powers, but then we've got two people who do tech stuff, and then I don't, I don't know what uh, meteorite or songbird. Well, I know what songbird's power is. She's basically Black Canary. Yeah, but like weirder. She can make like solid sounds, and she can right. fly with sound. Her um, powers are based also off of Ulysses' claw now because her voice was destroyed for some reason, somehow. But it's one of the, they they say that her powers are sound, and then she can just like do a but she can like make force fields and fly because of sound. Yeah. And you're like, okay, it's fine. But they don't they don't get a lot of unique stuff to do in these issues with their powers, which is a shame. Uh, Songbird ends up being. So Sombard de- debuted as a, a villain named Screaming Mimi, which you're right, is a great villain name. Yeah. In an issue of Marvel 2-in-1, number 54 in 1979, and she was there fighting The Thing and Deathlock. Oh. oh and originally, wow. Screaming Mimi was part of an all-girls wrestling villain squad. So they had to fight the armadillo? Yeah, yeah she's like friends with the armadillo. Uh, she used to, but she's like, uh, all her crimes are wrestling themed. Hmm. When she Pets. shows up. She she feels like a wrestling villain. Uh, as Songbird, though, she is the other most successfully reformed Thunderbolt, and she is the most consistent member of the roster. She's on almost every version of the team. And she also has a really great starring role in Al Ewing's U.S. Avengers and a cool relationship with Hawkeye in that one. Hmm. But I actually agree with you. My favorite of these Thunderbolts is Meteorite slash Moonstone. She's my very favorite Thunderbolt. Yeah, she's got she's got the most to do. She's got the most interesting actions and choices. And it always feels like she's scheming. But you never really know what she's scheming about. Like, is she <laughs> is she at because there's, there's all this teasing of is she actually trying to reform? Is she actually is she not? Is she kind of being seduced by the good, which is the opposite of the normal dynamic of a team where you've got like the one who's being seduced by the dark side. And she gets some good like she she talk, talks a character into doing something and they're like Yes, that's my favorite thing. Yeah. That's my favorite thing about Moonstone. She's Moonstone's really powerful. She can like phase through stuff and she's uh super strong and she can fly. Yeah, we don't see any of that. Yeah, she's like, um, and right before um, Carol Danvers changed her identity from Ms. Marvel to Captain Marvel, Mm -hmm. in those last couple years, Moonstone was making a real play for being Carol's arch nemesis. Oh, wow, really? And I would be really into that. I think Moonstone's a great villain. She's super scary. She's scary because she's a therapist, 
she's not above manipulating her patients into doing what she her evil bidding. Right. That was I I thought that was very tenuous at best. Every well, time I, I'm like, she's a therapist. I'm like, cool. I know. I love it. I you you position her um as you know she's got like a secret identity and then she's the the therapist for the heroes and then she tells them to do uh, awful stuff. I think this is a great idea for a villain because mm-hmm. she gets you when you're most vulnerable when you're in therapy. Yeah. Yeah. She is also a very consistent presence on the Thunderbolts, but she is one of the least successfully reformed. She remains villainous. Well, I mean, I could I could see that. Um, I think she's great. She's super scary, and uh, she's a big part of the Jeff Parker run, which is and she's great on that. She's my I mean, she's my favorite. The only reason she's not the most evil member of the team is because uh, they put crossbones on the team, and he's a literal Nazi. Yeah, why? I don't know why he remains popular. Crossbones. Yeah. They put him on the team to be the villain that the other villains hate so that they would... Uh, so he's the empath of the team. Yeah. Gotcha. And we finally just need to talk about uh, Techno, who was the villain fixer. Which is such a hilarious concept. It's like, what's your what is your evil plan? Oh, I fixed the things. <laughs> yeah, he debuts in as early as 1966. He's just um, like a Hydra guy who fights Nick Fury a bunch. Yeah, he, he has that design. Yeah, he does. He the uh, techno is a terrible name, and I forgot that he uses it in this. But oh, he abandons so that really quickly, and he goes back to being called Fixer as a hero, and he uh, he shows up a bunch too. Oh, cool. Yeah, I I don't really have much more to say about the teams. Like, cool. I I guess I'm a little bit more cool on this entire series than you are it seems uh well i've read a lot of different runs of thunderbolts and the different things they end up doing with the premise are a lot of fun i like this because as you can see um they're gonna keep up this charade for a really long time so if you keep on reading these issues just like they're gonna do superhero adventures but they have to pretend you know but they're not heroes they're all these Mm -hmm. uh scummy guys or or they're all in it for different reasons and some of them really love being heroes and zemo's in it for uh take over the world reasons and atlas is in it because he likes the 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 publicity and uh likes being liked and moonstone uh it's easier for her to do her evil things if people aren't onto her schemes like everyone it, it just uh it plays out for a really long time and these first couple issues aren't um the they don't leave the biggest impression but it's a great start to this ongoing concept and for yeah this goes on for many years this goes on for almost 10 years that they stay undercover and then zemo gets found out and then they keep on going without him hawkeye joins the team luke cage joins the team what that's so strange that's strange to me that this team is able to actually get past this whole you know this whole era and I, because I don't know when, how much past this does Zemo reveal his plan? Does he ever reveal the plan? Do they get found out? I don't know. And I'm kind of, I'm, I am connected enough to want to keep reading to see where it goes, but I don't know if I can handle this much nineties. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but, but yeah, that's why I think it's fun to dip in because this, yeah. it does go on for a long time and it is fun. Uh, it's, it, it starts to change and it starts to take on different premises around uh, the time of Civil War. Mm-hmm. In Civil War, it becomes the government, uh, it becomes Suicide Squad. The government captures villains and then forces them into being like indentured heroes. Hmm. But when Thunderbolts really was at their peak, I think, was uh, during, uh, from Civil War to Secret Invasion, they beca- uh, Norman Osborn leads the team. Mm-hmm. 
and they become a list a team of A-list villains. Ooh, that's a big change. Um, yeah, and I think that's when uh, I would recommend other people start picking it up. But Moonstone stays on the team, but then you get Bullseye, you get uh, Speedball coming hot off of Civil War, you get the Radioactive Man, uh, Songbird, uh, one of the Struckers, and Venom. That is a team and a half. Yeah, and they're all trying to kill each other, and they're barely under control, and Norman Osborn is psychotic, and so is Moonstone, and they're trying to manipulate each other. It's fantastic. Um, but you'll remember the thing that came out of that was Dark Reign, when those guys become the Avengers, and the Avengers are the Thunderbolts. Oh. That's Dark yes. Avengers by Bendis, and that is a whole run about, th- that is a Thunderbolts run. It's just called something different, but it's, uh, it spins directly out of Thunderbolts. That, okay. Then I have read some Thunderbolt stuff when I read uh, Siege and Fear Itself. Yeah, there you go. So that's um, that's when the team was at its peak. And then for a couple years after that, they changed premises a bunch. And my favorite one is the Jeff Parker run where it's Luke Cage running a prisoner rehabilitation program where uh, prisoners are allowed to uh, get special perks uh, in from the raft if they uh, assist the Thunderbolts. And it has, like, a rotating ro- a roster, but it's super fun. A U.S. Agent is uh, there. Uh, Moonstone's uh, still around. US Juggernaut's agent. on that team. Just a, a ton of fun. I, I find myself returning to that run a whole bunch. Maybe one day I will. I, I, anytime you start t- talking about reds that I haven't read, I'm like, oh, I wish I read that so I would have more to say. As long as I'm sitting here, I'm like, yeah. Oh, but I got nothing to add. I guess just all my conclusion is that I think Thunderbolts is a fun idea. I wish that they were back in an ongoing capacity, but in the meantime, it's really fun that it's so malleable a concept that it started off with such a strong idea and that they still uh, do different stuff with it. Like the King in Black miniseries, which has been by Matt Rosenberg, which has been pretty fun so far. I I haven't read it. (laughs) Well, I recommend you uh, keep an eye out for Thunderbolts in the future. They're a fun. I I think I will. And And I I may actually end up finishing this. I have just a few random notes on this. Sure. Uh, and one other big, not big, but something else I found interesting that I kind of want to talk about. And it was most, it's mostly like weird process stuff. Like, I, I don't know why Kurt Busiek has Franklin talking the way he does. I'm so used to like super smart angst Franklin that actual literal child Franklin talking with, these odd affectations like saying the gummint i don't know why that that got to me i so much that i wrote a note about it yeah i dialect is such a thing in 90s comics and yeah. uh, they do accents and they do weird baby talk sometimes yeah yeah uh and then we've got the 90sness of all the the art which isn't to say that it is bad it is just the stylistic choices are very indicative of the era pronounced defined muscles pencil wastes just just so so much yeah and so uh, much muscle so many barrel biceps the weirdest part of that art style to me is sometimes i don't understand design choices like um i kind of love meteorite's costume it's made up of like uh like a lower piece and then there's like some sort of like uh like a torn up something on top of it but i can't tell if it's supposed to be like actual fire or like a liquid or like fabric it's completely unclear uh i find her look very striking and uh i like the the colors are bold there's like some good design moves going on in some of the costumes but i just like they're just haphazard 
I just like don't understand. I, I I like what they look like, but I couldn't describe it to you with words because I don't understand them. I'm just looking at pages. The sound effects are more pronounced than they are now. Like I don't know what it is about the sound effects in this book, and even even in other '90s books, but they're so they're very they're definitely early digital lettering. Yeah, I noticed that there was even some uh, mixed case fonts in some cases. Yeah, and I kind of I like it. I like the look of these, even though they don't necessarily look very organic. They kind of fit the aesthetic well, and they feel they they in fact that because they are obtrusive, they're I can appreciate them more because they actually like they draw my attention and like oh that's what it's supposed to sound like, versus. I don't. I never notice sound effects in, in like modern Marvel and DC comics. I think if you were to uh, score every year that Marvel published, the late '90s would have one of the lowest averages of any year. Yeah, probably. Just like like worst books, and so I I feel like a bunch of neutral stylistic things like big sound bubbles and mixed case font and this early, very early pioneering digital style stuff gets a bad rap because there were so many bad comics coming out at this time. And that's another reason why I think this is so great is because I don't think we're going to spend too much time in the 90s. Probably not. Uh, in our book club. And that means that we're just not going to get to explore some of these fun aesthetics that are dated in like a fun way that makes me smile. Although I think the early 2000s was really where mixed case and like digital coloring was starting to to be tried out and experimented with. And that's the worst, worst, worst. Worst, <laughs> worst era. Well, get no ready. No one can tell me when we announce that our next that. our next book club project. Uh, we're reading a book that starts in that era. Yeah, but I can tell you right now, the lettering will not be as bad as the lettering I'm thinking of. I know what you're thinking of. Yeah, you, th- you know ultimates. what I'm thinking of, and your your opinion on it is wrong. I don't have a strong opinion. I think it's whatever. <laughs> For the confused, it is the ultimate universe lettering the worst mixed case lettering to ever grace i'm not like a great defender of it i just don't care that much it doesn't bother me (laughs) fair enough i have i have strong feelings about them no that's cool (laughs) that's fine yeah fun to hang out in the 90s yeah hang out not not stay very long yeah i don't want to live there but it's fun to visit i think the 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 other couple things there was a character called angar and i saw that and i just laughed (laughs) Uh, and then early on, the very first issue, there was that character, which I don't know why they were wearing a, a uniform that just had a, a boob window arrow pointing to their face. I, was this I a member of the mercenary squad? That was a choice. It was in a, it was in issue number one, and it was of one of the teams of, I don't know if it was a hero or a villain, but I saw that and I was like, okay, we're definitely in the 90s now. You, it might have been Sue Storm. No, it wasn't Sue Storm. It wasn't a Sue Storm costume. I'm flipping back to try and see what it is. Clearly, this is the most important part of the Thunderbolts book. I was struck by it. They spend a lot of their time uh, liaising with the mayor of New York City. The mayor would have been Giuliani at this time, no? Um, This is 1997. I think Giuliani is mayor. Maybe. It was... Okay, so it was... I think it was Titania of the Frightful Four. Yeah, she, that makes sense. That is what her costume looks like. Yeah, that's a that's a choice. 
Giuliani being mayor makes this book make even more sense because obviously like a Nazi would be able to successfully pretend to be a superhero in order to uh, be corrupt and let his cronies just like loot from uh, the public services under the watch of Mayor Giuliani. This book is actually very political. Given the building of one of the most important uh, and philanthropic families in the entire city for free. (laughs) Yeah, let no one tell you that uh, Thunderbolts isn't political. Knowing what I know about uh, Kurt Busiek and what he values, I think he would be very into our interpretation. Probably, but he definitely wasn't thinking that far, considering he had to deal with Onslaught. No, I don't think uh, I don't think he was seeing the future, but I also think he uh, he's smiling about it too. <laughs> so before we close out. Final thing. I noticed that they credited the colorists after the letterers in most of these issues. And that's something I had never seen before. Because normally the credit orders in comic books are writer, artist, or penciler, inker, uh, if it's broken down, and then colorist and letterer. And then usually the editors and all that. And this is like Marvel DC teams. It carries over into to independent stuff. But once it gets into independent, the order kind of can get a little shifted um and obviously when the marvel books do weird headshot thing anyway that's usually the the reading order of credits but here those two are flipped and i was wondering if this was a holdover from when the colorists were never even credited on issues that's what i was gonna say yeah i well at at different points there's been different coloring techniques and they only started getting uh credited I think in the nineties. Oh, really? Uh, don't hold me to that. I need to. I, 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 I'm not saying that the very first colorist was credited in the nineties, but I think Marvel started uh, regularly crediting colorists yeah. ar- around this time. Yeah, I meant specifically Marvel. Letterers got credited all the way back to the sixties. Well, they got credited from the first issue. They were credited in Amazing Fantasy number fifteen. Right, right. But so the letterer, I think, in the uh, since the colorist is a newer position, I think. It uh, goes after the letterer, and then I think t- by the rationale by today is that the colorist is often like the penciler or the inker. It's just considered another division of the art responsibilities. Mm-hmm. That was my. That's always been my uh, understanding of the rationale. Yeah, I just found that really interesting to to kind of point <laughs> out and look at because, as with many things, especially that I've done this too, where I'm like, oh, it's always been the way I'm used to seeing it, and you see it different. You're like. When did that happen? When did the change happen? Sure, no, that's the attention to detail I, I like us to get into in the show sometimes. I'm, sh- I'm sure our audience is very interested in the credit placement <laughs> of colorists on Marvel books from 1997. No, I think we got uh, some real comic freaks coming in here. And we see, <laughs> we see you, and you guys are seen. And we appreciate you. And I hope you guys appreciated Thunderbolts. They're neat. They are very neat. Next time we're getting into something that I'm even more, like, I'm much more enthusiastic about. This is an old favorite of mine. With our next episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be changing up our format a little bit because with the holidays and everything and, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to see, to see if uh, 2021 we could do some something a little little exciting yeah i was dreaming of this and i w- was trying to think of the best way to do it and i was like if we're gonna read this we should read it right yeah and read it all so we are going to read a huge run of comics of uh and we keep uh, adding issues to it so at this point it's well over 150 
that I'm going to call this whole storyline the Annihilation Saga. And it is a story that begins in a comic called Annihilation, but then it goes into uh, a run of Nova, the, the Marvel hero Nova, and the run of the Guardians of the Galaxy, who later are, a, are made famous by the movie. Yeah, not, not the 80s Guardians. Yeah, not the uh, earlier iteration of the team. Uh, we're going to be reading this whole Annihilation Saga, and we're going to be posting the reading order every time we post the podcast. We might update it or uh, uh, tweak it a little bit, but roughly it's going to stay the same. Uh, currently, it's, it seems like it's going to take us 11 episodes to cover all of these issues. We're out twice a month. That means probably half a year to read the story. I'm excited, Elias. Are you excited or are you scared? Uh, I'm a little bit of both. It's basically going to be like the Multiversity Summer Binges. In fact, I think it's going to pretty much cover the entirety of the months that we normally would do that. If I'm if I'm getting my timeline right, I think it will. I think so, you're right. I think uh, we're going to have to maybe come out with some supplemental material. Oh, God. Giving, giving me more work. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, guys, we're going to start this Annihilation Saga with Annihilation. And the first issues you should read of that are collected in... A trade that I have that's called Annihilation Part 1. I think it's still in print. But the issues are, uh, and, and, I, and this is the correct order, uh, Drax the Destroyer Earthfall, numbers 1 to 4. And then Annihilation Prologue, number 1. And then Annihilation Nova, numbers 1 to 4. Alright, all of those are in the Annihilation Part 1 trade. And that is the proper reading order. The, we will uh, update you as we move forward. Uh, as to what you should be reading, but we're trying to hit all of it. Yeah, the the idea is by the end of this, we have read the entirety of basically everything that touches on this era of, or I guess whatever this we're calling, what we're calling the Annihilation Saga. I'm there will probably either be a couple really super tangential tie-ins that end up either getting dropped or we're like we included this for completeness's sake. But we will be making those determinations as we get there. Because thankfully, while this is sprawling, it is not nearly as sprawling as some of the other utterly ridiculous events that have happened. And if you are if you want to get ahead or you want to start collecting, uh, the final story in this storyline is called Thanos Imperative. The last issue is Thanos Imperative Devastation. It runs from about 2006 to 2014. Yeah, we are covering a large swath of comics from... Basically, when I was not reading them. Yeah, a lot of so this came out be before fun. I got back into comics. I uh, had to tr- go back and track these down. This is going to be fun. I am terrified <laughs> looking at the these the number of comics I'm going to have to read and take notes on. I'm very scared, but I'm also very excited. And I hope you all join us and read the issues as we go along. So these will be supplanting our normal book club and then, you know, that's right. Marvel talk, catch up, topic, etc. for the foreseeable future until we reach the end of it. I'm sure we'll have small little bits of check-ins on things depending on how we're feeling in the issue, in the episodes, but have we decided whether or not we're moving during these months the baseline X to Mutantversity? Uh we'll uh share that news when there's news to share. Yeah. Until then, Hey, where where can you find you on the larger interwebs? Can't forget that. Kevin uh, drilled it into our heads. I can be found on uh, Twitter. Uh, you can find me at rambling underscore moose. I also uh, contribute to multiversitycomics.com, and you should check us out there. There's some fun stuff happening. 
What about you, Elias? Where where are you found? And you can find me on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. On that area... That is the secret Morse code to figure out what my name may or may not be trying to tell you. You can also find me writing here at multiversitycomics.com. And I don't really have much to update on that because it's always ongoing. I'm finally done with Tower of God, midway through Riverdale. Hopefully Supergirl will have started up again. By the time of recording, I'm genuinely not sure when it's coming back. So we shall see. We'll see you in space. In space.